Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Corn Roast Podcast. I am your host, Mark Schindler, as always. Before we get started, if you have not already, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Indie Corn Roast Podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out in growing this thing and getting your feedback and, and what you think on everything. It's really important to me. Um, really put a lot of work and effort into this, so you know that would be fantastic. Um, of course, read us over at Indie Corn Roast. Um, Caitlin just put out a great piece. And of course, I'm joined by Caitlin today because this is our tradition. It is Try Tuesday, two questions to ah. So I'm really excited to get started with this. Caitlin, we were talking before we got on. We had uh, not a whole ton on the docket a couple days ago. And now we could take 30 questions to ah today. So <laughs> how are you doing? I'm doing well. Just got done. Had to scramble around to get something up because I thought the Pacers were done hiring assistant coaches, but Turns out they weren't. So they had a formal announcement on Friday that seemed like that was their press release to say, here's Nate Bjorken's coaching staff. But then this morning, you know, Woj tweets that they're hiring former IU star Calbert Chaney. So what are you thinking about that? I thought it was interesting. My immediate reaction was like, oh, wow, I haven't really thought about Calbert Chaney since I watched Blue Chips a couple months ago when we had no basketball. Um, no, I think, I mean, it's interesting. I was reading up on him this morning. I didn't realize how active he'd been in coaching since he retired in 06. Um, worked in the Warriors front office for a little bit and then in player development. Um, obviously was director of b-ball ops at IU for two years while Victor was there, which I think is something interesting that we're going to talk about. Um, and then he was at St. Louis, which I forgot that St. Louis almost made it to the Sweet 16 a couple of times, and they were like a top 25 team for a few years. Um and yeah, I mean, he's just kind of been making his rounds it was with uh, the Erie Bayhawks um, the last two years. And now he is a coach for the Indiana Pacers. So, yeah, that definitely surprised me this morning when I got the notification. I was expecting a trade, but no, another assistant coach was added to the staff. Also, I have a question for you, too, before we talk more about Calbert. Um, I think it's interesting. Like I, I saw the uh, I think it was either the Raptors. I think it was the Raptors who finalized their coaching staff the other day and they have like 12 assistants. Um, so I just think it's kind of odd seeing how few the Pacers have right now comparatively. Um, I know the Raptors have a much larger staff than everybody else um, normally, but I just it's, it's interesting to see kind of the differences like that. Right. It seems like the Pacers usually hover around three or four. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, if you look at the Knicks, like Tom Thibodeau, I feel like has a bench of about like. 20 people by now they have a whole Every team of assistants yes yeah. i mean at brooklyn too i mean they have like 36 head coaches so yeah yes <laughs> including um, Kyrie and, uh, and kevin durant so yeah i don't know if that's like a money thing or if they just prefer a smaller brain trust I, i'm not sure what exactly the rationale is there but definitely interesting that you're announcing a formal staff mm -hmm. on friday and now this morning, with everything that's swirling around Victor Oladipo, you're hiring somebody that worked with Victor Oladipo in player development at IU. 
And then this morning I noticed and had forgotten from last year when Victor had his little fantasy camp experience in August that Cal Bear Cheney was one of the people he had there with him. So kind of seems like an olive branch to Victor here at this point. So I guess we're just going to try to tamp down all of the noise and pretend like nothing happened. Yeah, I I don't know. I, <laughs> I Exactly right. Like I don't even know what to say or think because I feel like that's the not to compare complete analogies but I felt like that was what we did with Paul a little bit and now I I mean I don't even know what to think after last I feel Thursday. like this mess is worse than anything that it happened feels worse than with I Paul. think it's definitely worse than that yeah but. which is I I was talking to Tom the other day and I was like Tom I don't even think I can I can defend Victor now and that's saying something because I feel like I've been kind of a, I, I I mean I'm always like very player centric um and now I'm at the point where I don't – I'm like, hey, man, I don't even know what I can say now after everything that's gone down. But um, Right, and I mean, he has – just like any player, I mean, I'm with you. I support the fact that they have the right to want to play where they want to play. Yeah, if, exactly. If he doesn't want to finish his contract with Indiana and he's going to tell him, like, you know, I'm not going to entertain extension talks, then as Paul did, then that is what it is. But, I mean, I remember several months back I did a podcast over with um, Brian and Mort and on – the NBA pod and mm-hmm. uh, mentioned that there had been some locker room issues that I had heard about. And while I can't confirm what all Jay has, and he has way better sources than I do at the Indy star, I don't know about, you know, Victor asking what was reported about asking other teams, but I had heard that there was locker room issues and I did know there was tension between Malcolm and Victor. So Nate Bjork, and if this is, if they're going to run back the same roster, he's going to have his hands full to, um, massage everything that's been going on over the last two weeks I would think especially now that it's all public knowledge yeah yeah exactly and I think uh I mean it's just so weird too because I you know I was talking to Tony East about this yesterday and Alex Golden we were doing a pod and of course my power shut off in the middle of it so we lost it um but I just think, well, uh, you know, I don't. We'll, we can get into it because it's one of it's obviously one of the questions I have that, that we'll we'll talk about. But I feel like the more that I just dive into it now, I'm going to just divulge even more. Um, so, where do you want to start? Do you want me to start, or, or how do you want to dive into this? Let's see. Well, I know my two questions. I'll just let you go. I'll let you go. We'll okay. Um, so I'll just open it up with a bang. Um, should the Pacers trade Victor Oladipo? Yeah, I mean, here's the interesting part, which this will kind of parlay into my first question as well. Mm-hmm. But I think more than more than him asking other teams, can I come play with y'all? More than all the Twitter drama and, and even like the stuff with Miles Turner and his sister going back and forth, that more than any of that, day. more than any of that is the note in the Shams release and the fact that he didn't do this through the Pacers. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. For the third time now has gone through the athletic instead of sitting in an open forum and answering questions or, you know, just issuing a PR release with the Pacers like they did with Larry Bird in response to the podcast rumor and which was a much sillier rumor to even be addressing. But beyond that is that it says that he isn't going to entertain extension talks. Like if he, and again, he has the right, if he wants to bet on himself and this is going to be his one big payday, I totally understand that, but it just doesn't lead to thinking that there's too much of a commitment here from him to the Pacers. If somebody coming off in an injury isn't going to entertain a four year, $113 million of guaranteed money right now, 
when he could be at risk of suffering another injury. I mean, look how concerned he was about his health in the bubble. So Mm -hmm. from the Pacers perspective, I just don't really see how this relationship extends beyond the trade deadline personally. And if it isn't going to extend beyond then with how messy all of it is right now, it's highly questionable to to continue it and create what's going to be a lot of tension at media day and training camp. And when the season starts, unless they just – think they have a complete handle on it and are just going to tamp it all down. Like I, I just think that that all of the rest of it was kind of burying the lead that he's not going to entertain an extension for that degree of money. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have so many thoughts off of this. I think um, number one, I just want to say I have no issue with Victor wanting to not be here, but I think the problem is just the way he's handled it. Um, You know, like I think it, I don't want to say he's gaslighting the Pacers, but it, I mean, is that incorrect? I mean, I, I know that's kind of a, a harsh word to throw out, but, um, you know, it, at some point, it like you're mentioning with him not doing anything through Pacers PR, like that's if all this other stuff wasn't going on, that's just one thing that's like, OK, you know, it's, it's weird, but whatever. But with with how everything's gone and him re- repeatedly mentioning, I can't quell the rumors. People are going to say what they say. Uh, this is what I was mentioning with Tony and Alex yesterday. I'm like. It doesn't even have to be through Pacers PR, but if he just came out and did a press conference and said, I'm committed to the Pacers instead of doing it through Sham Sharani, like that was, that was weird. Like I, I felt very odd, like that almost was more unsettling about him actually being committed to the Pacers and him actually coming out and saying it. It um, seemed like he was, I mean, it's very much. It just felt like a trade the- recoup, like a, Medium. like recouping value, you know? Yeah, I just felt like medium before the message. It felt yes. like me telling the national media that I I support the Pacers is exactly me trying to to recoup my value with the rest of the league more than it is me addressing local reporters about what's being said about me. Plus, I mean, and beyond all that is the fact that Jay Michael said that he reached out to Victor and his people for two weeks for comment mm-hmm. on the initial story. Like, if you really wanted to combat the rumor, why wouldn't you have just said what you told Sham Sharania to Jay Michael and have it printed in the Indy star story. Like if that's what your stand on all of it was beyond that, like, why are you also like tweeting pictures of Etsy chalkboards with, if you say you have no problem, you love your teammates and you cherish the state of Indiana. There's really no reason to be like throwing shade with a Etsy chalkboard Bible verse. But you know, like I said, I just think he's getting some maybe perhaps bad advice from I don't know, his agent, his manager. I just don't think it's the best way to handle it, especially if you're not the star caliber right now of, you know, Anthony Davis didn't handle it all that well when he left New Orleans, you know, wearing a that's all folks t-shirt. But he's Anthony Davis. Yeah. Like you kind of understand that degree of, you know, leveraging your star power when you're that degree of a star. I just, I've questioned a lot. Is he good enough to be doing this? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I no, I think that's a great question. Like, and that's not to besmirch him. Like, I think you look at if he did this in 1718, like, oh, okay, I guess I, I can kind of understand it, you know, at the end of the season. Um, or I guess maybe beginning of 1819 or something. But I, I think, yeah, I agree too. Like, if then this is not trying to speak down on his agent, but I believe Victor is like his agent's like really only high profile client. So that's kind of raises questions a little bit. Um, I think you also look to like, um, especially just at this whole thing. I mean, him not coming out on Twitter, like with, with the whole thing with his sister, like I, first of all, the fact that we're even talking about that, his sister like subtweeted miles Turner like that. 
what? Like, I, I don't even know what to, to think about that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just think my biggest thing is I, I get what you're saying about maybe the trade deadline. And I know this team wants to quote unquote run it back, but is it almost too much of like a chemistry bomb um, to, to go into this, to, to go into the season with Victor? Um, and again, I mean, it's so hard to talk about this stuff with and, and not sound like we're like judging somebody. Like I think that Victor's still all around a good dude. He doesn't get into trouble off court. Um, so I never want to like make, make it sound like I'm saying anything like that, but just, it's pretty clear now. I mean, miles, miles does not routinely just come back and like smack people down on Twitter. Um, so that was like, if that's bubbling up enough on Twitter, like that's, that's sizable. I, I was talking about this the other day too. Like, it's like the, uh, the, I think it's the iceberg theory, like the thing from Sigmund Freud, like, okay, so you can see the tip of the iceberg above the water. That means that there's just so much more stuff going down underneath that we're not entirely aware of. Um, and I know, I mean, Jay's been sitting on that story for like a month. Um, and uh, I don't know if you saw this too, but there was a Miami Heat sideline reporter that came out and um, they didn't name the player, but they were like, yeah, a player just corroborated this for me. So that that, that exactly happened. Um, when when the Pacers were playing Miami, um, so well, I can tell you that shortly after the Nate McMillan dismissal occurred, that I had somebody tell me, like I said, that the Pacers had locker room issues mm-hmm. and that there was tension between Victor and Brogdon, and that Victor—I don't want to use the word that they had told me, but that he had been uh, somewhat. Mm, disruptive in the locker room throughout the season i'll just put it that way so like i'm not gonna i'm not doubting the story i mean yeah. i'm just not plus i'm just not gonna do that to another reporter anyways but, yeah exactly um yeah i mean I, I think it's fair to question all of that because like you said like even in the initial tweets and and i'll say like victor's sister has the right to tweet whatever she oh wants. yeah for like, sure. it's totally her voice she can say what she wants but i mean she didn't in those comments and herself she didn't at miles turner so mm-hmm. he had to have been monitoring all of that exactly seen it and been angry enough to respond like that just yeah as you say it tells me that there's more going on that we don't even know about and obviously the pacers have their finger on the pulse here of what the situation is better than you or I do, but it does bring about questions. And I understand, I mean, for several weeks now, I've been saying I'd get if they took a measured approach and wanted him to come back because he has every reason to play better. If he wants to make all of this money, you can recoup some of his value and hopefully get more firm in a trade. But as you say, like how much of that is really worth it if, if there's other chemistry issues afoot. And then this part, Um, We'll just parlay into what my question is, which comes from, I need to give the person credit because it was a good question and it wasn't originally mine. Uh, John Gray on Twitter asks, what differences would you foresee in the Bjorkren offense with or without Victor Oladipo? So this is a very good question, John. Thank you for asking. Um, So with Victor, this is interesting because obviously last season was under Nate McMillan, so it's not going to be completely comparable. And it's also a very small sample size because the starters were barely in action at the same time. But if you want to take a guess at who had the highest usage when the starting lineup was on the floor last year, the intended starting lineup. Oh, it was probably Malcolm. No. Oh, oh, the intended. Oh, it was Vic then. It was easily Vic. Yes, Victor. So – then if you look at it when Lamb was playing with the starters, which is obviously way more minutes, mm-hmm. 
it was Malcolm Brogdon and TJ Warren. And then in the minutes when Aaron started, like when Brogdon was hurt with the other four and, and, and Jeremy, not Victor. I mean, when Vic, sorry, I'm totally bumbling <laughs> this. When Aaron started in place of Jeremy Lamb for that little stretch of games after, yeah. um, then it was Brogdon and Sabonis because they just kind of ran through pick and roll with Aaron and more of an off ball role. But the point being here is how much is Victor going to be willing to sacrifice if he's playing for a new contract for this little portion ahead of the trade deadline? Like if we're imagining that the, that Victor isn't going to be here long-term and that the Pacers are going to use this little stretch of games to, to recoup some of his value, is he going to be a guy who's going to play within the team system? Like, yeah. I think that's a valid question because his, his usage was already off the charts last year when he was just trying to work his way back from injury. And we know that obviously if he's not going to listen to an extension talk for 112 million, that he has higher goals in mind to get back and to want other teams to want him. So I think that's a pretty big question to ask in relation to all of this, but to answer John's question, I would think that like, and some of this is tough to say, cause we just don't really know what, Bjorkren's going to do with the pieces that he has, but we can look at some of the stuff he did with the G league, which was more streamlined and look at some of the stuff the Raptors ran that I think would suit well for uh, the Pacers starting lineup. And I think if Victor's there, you're going to be running some offense through him for the reasons I just laid out. And like the Raptors like to run some like pitch DHO between like Fred Van Vliet and Lowry where one person's dribbling it up and immediately pitches it not in pistol, but at the top of the key. And then they go right into stacked pick and roll. So it's a pretty quick hitting action that I think would definitely work with Victor and Brogdon. I think sometimes they would also run one of their guards off a stagger and then use a boomerang pass, which a boomerang pass means that what it sounds like that like Brogdon would pass it to Vic coming off of a stagger. And then Vic would pass it right back to Brogdon to attack in the gaps. Then the other guard can cut back door. I think you'd see, a lot of that type of stuff versus if, well, I'll let you answer what you think it might look like with Vic before I answer the other part of his question. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. And I think you brought up a really great point too on, on Vic in a contract year. And I think that's, it's something that we kind of underrate every player in a contract year. There's a reason why we see a lot of people, you know, or a lot of players that, that perform well in a contract year, because that's important. That's how you get paid. Um, yeah, I think the the biggest thing that I would bring up when looking at, at that, especially all right, if you have Victor from 17, 18, then you're okay with his usage being pretty high and obviously being the highest on the team. Um, if you have Vic from the bubble, definitely not. Um, and I think that's pretty easy to say. I think that I would point out right away, uh, I mean, Ben Taylor and, and my friend Cody Hodak, who does some work with Ben as well, they're really big on talking about portability. Um, which is basically talking about, you know, how does somebody's role um, translate to winning or being on a, a, a high caliber team? Um, so I think Victor, if he's playing the way that he did in the bubble, he's taking the most shots. He's in that quote unquote star role, whatever you want to call it, but he's not doing it at a good job. He's not doing it in a way that is going to benefit the Pacers necessarily. Um, but you also look, okay, if he can still play really high quality defense, um, he can take, you know, his catch and shoot three wasn't actually that good, but he can do stuff off the dribble. Um, but if that's the kind of player he is, if he's more of just uh, he becomes more of a spot up guy and maybe attacks, attacks closeouts and runs some pick and roll still if, if his handle's okay. Like, I guess 
if he could actually, you know, hone his role down, um, that would be great. But that, the point is, we, he probably won't. You know, that's just feasibly not going to happen in a contract year. Um, so I think that's bad for the Pacers. I mean, we would see a lot more of the offense that we just saw in the bubble, likely. You know, a lot of isolation, dominant, uh, ineffective basketball. Um, all right, I mean, that wouldn't be everything, but I think when it hit the end of the shot clock and you have, I don't, saying selfish is the wrong word, but if you have a guy who thinks he's the one who has to have the ball at the end of the shot clock, chances are he's going to end up with the with the ball at the end of the shot clock. Like, it's it's a little bit of apples to oranges, but like Reggie Jackson in Oklahoma City, um, like, I mean, he thought that he should have the ball at the end of the shot clock. He ends up getting frozen out by the Thunder and traded in about two weeks of that starting. So uh, I'm not saying that's going to happen with Victor, but I just think that can totally disrupt the entire flow of an offense. Um, like a lot of the teams that haven't really had quote unquote, you know, top tier star level players, they really thrive on on ball movement and and not having someone who is necessarily ISO dominant at the end of a shot clock. Um, so I think, you know, if it would be really difficult to kind of gauge um, what Nate Bjorkman's offense is, if, if that's the kind of basketball that gets played. Well, and it's interesting because in the seeding games in the bubble, I mean, it kind of felt like he was willingly seeding a bit of a backseat mm-hmm. because one, TJ Warren was scorching hot. And two, it, it seemed like he was easing his way back into things. I mean, we've yeah. said it many times, but he was basically declaring himself a perpetual game time decision. So it didn't seem like he had much issue that, hey, I'm third in the pecking order here. And in the one game when Brogdon and TJ Warren were out against the Rockets, he was like seven to 25 from the field. Then in the playoffs, I don't even remember which game it was now game three or four. I think that it's like under two minutes to play. And he took the one hero ball shot contested against Goran Dragic. And it's like, okay, you're not really ready to be back in that role yet. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's why I have some questions about it, but Um, To answer the other part of John's question, if they were to trade Victor, which who knows what's going to happen with that. uh, I am kind of interested to see um, some of the stuff that I pointed out in the Chris Finch article, the, which is kind of interesting because Chris Finch also coached with Nick Nurse. Went to the Raptors. I was so sad to see that. I was like, oh, there's got to be a little bit of room on the Pacers bench. And has a long-term history with Nick Nurse. They ran some of the same things that that showed up with the Pelicans and uh, the Nuggets and the first year that Jokic became the starting center and was the fulcrum. So, like, you might see up there in Toronto, like, Gasol 20 feet from the basket, and they ran a lot of those same corner flare actions where you might see, like, TJ Warren – as a screener for Malcolm Brogdon. And then you're either getting Warren slipping or Brogdon spotting up or, you know, one of them ghosts the flare and they automatically flow into a dribble handoff around Gasol. Like that was a lot of stuff that the Raptors did last year. Uh, They also ran the same face cut plays that the heat run. So you might see like TJ Warren in the corner and it looks like, you know, it might look like a handoff and then he immediately snaps in front of his defender. He's a good Mm -hmm. sneaky baseline cutter. Uh, and then one play, like if Miles Turner and Sabonis, if they are going to try to continue making this double big thing work, they had a couple plays that I did like, even though I don't think the Ibaka Kazal comparison is a is a perfect one. And we went into that deep on the last pod, but uh, where, you know, Gasol might have a low post entry pass and then they're setting a top pin for 
uh, Ibaka, and I think that would suit really well with Turner and Sabonis to get more threes in that sort of a fashion. So I think you might see more of that, like you said before. Like if you don't have a clear top option, you're going to be doing more with motion, and that's a lot more about putting what pieces you have in the best positions to score, yet still having freedom within those sets, which is what Bjorkern did a lot in the G League as well. Like it was streamlined actions at all four stops, but it was tailored to what players he had at all of those stops and what type of team they were going to be. So that's how I would answer that question. Yeah, I liked what you said too. I think dynamic screening is the biggest thing. That was not something that we saw a ton with the Pacers last year, especially down the stretch. Like so much of every action that happened is like occasionally you get that pistol action, but a lot of the times it's like, okay, we'll wait until Miles and Domas can come screen and then we'll run a play. Um, I think the idea of getting TJ involved a lot more in screens and getting um, just even, even the guards more involved in screens too. I think that's just like you're mentioning is would be huge for opening up the offense. All right. So let's flow into what is your next question? Yeah. So this is kind of a, a, a really big enveloping question that I've been thinking about a lot the last week. Uh, I really wanted to write about it, but just the way that everything is flowing out, I am not going to have time to write a long form piece on something that is not happening right now. Um, and I think my question is, and I, it's not technically, well, I mean, it is my question, but it was a little bit based off. I saw there was a Reddit thread um, yesterday, which that was always a mistake to go on, on r slash Pacers um, just to see some of the comments on there. Um, but there was a Boston fan that posted something about, you know, how good of a player is Miles Turner? Um, and so that's not my question. My question is, what is Miles Turner right now? Um, you know, what is his ability? What is his trade value? And, you know, what is his relevance and importance in the league? And uh, we could also mention his potential. But I think overall, like, I have so many questions about how we view Miles as a player Um I, or I guess maybe how the fan base views Miles as a player and kind of the, I, I don't know. I don't like, I, I think, I don't think anyone thinks that he's a bust or anything like that. I think that would be kind of ludicrous um, considering he's only the 11th pick. Um, but I think the expectations that Miles got um, once his second year hit, and he had obviously a tremendous second year um, and he's never quite replicated that. And I think he's obviously gotten better as a player, but I think sometimes we get very caught up in the box score. Um, but I, I do wonder, you know, I think Miles is kind of an enigma, even to people who watch him, you know, 24 seven. So I wonder kind of where we're at with him because I'm not anticipating a trade happening, but that's very possible to happen before the next try Tuesday to, ah, so, um, I kind of, I, I just want to open up, open it up with that. Yeah. I think that the word enigma is a good one. I mean, I think in the most ideal image, if I could design what I would want, how I would want Miles Turner to be used and how he would function is that he would be a stretch five defended by fives with a four that's going to support that model. Mm. And I don't know that the Pacers have a means of getting that particular player. I think that for his individual productivity, that's what's going to bring him out the most is dragging opposing rim protectors into space. And in order for him to do that, for one, they have to actually generate shots for him to drag rim protectors into space, but he also has to establish himself as a legitimate 
stretch big, which I think right now, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, I think right now it's just sort of more hypothetical. He's had yeah. one season where he shot above 36% from three. The right, he's, he's done that once in his career. Like by comparison, Abaka's shooting 36% from three for his career. And Miles is doing this on relatively low volume. This year he inched up the volume a bit, but his percentage dropped. So um, I think he needs to be able to establish himself that he's actually going to hit those shots at higher volume, that he's going to take a higher volume from the corner. And some of that goes back to the offense that he's played in. Like it's not his job to be, to, I mean, the set that I just described, like if you have Sabonis in the low post and you're actually setting it an action above that to get miles a shot, that's going to be an easier way to get him a field goal attempt than, Hey, we're just dotting the perimeter with four people around a Sabonis post up while he gets swarmed. But the other piece of that is miles for his career is this cliche thing that it all goes back to feel a lot of the times where sometimes his rhythm isn't the same as the other pieces on the floor. He doesn't always know even before Sabonis got there when he was a younger player, where if after he makes a pass or after he sets a screen, or even when he's playing on the periphery where he needs to, to move in conjunction with where the ball moves or where the ball stops, he doesn't know where to free himself in some of those spots. And I saw that, uh, when Jay Michael was reporting his update on Miles Turner and, and whether he would stay or go, he had in there that Nate Bjorkman plans to get him five to six threes per game. And hey, that's great. Like if Miles can get five or six threes a game and he can establish himself so that defenses, unlike what happened against Miami, aren't straying as far from him on the three point line, that would be really big for the Pacers. But my question then is there were times where Nate McMillan got Miles Turner shots and he did not shoot them. Yeah. Like he needs to get the ball and let the ball fly when he's in those situations. Not when you're in Utah and you're playing solo five at points throughout that game and Rudy Gobert is dropped into space and you're passing out of that attempt. Not against Dallas when you generate a switch and you're huge and you can shoot over the top of somebody from three and you immediately put the ball on the floor and throw a grenade to TJ McConnell in the corner to shoot a three like that can't happen. And that's why some of it was a little bit frustrating last year when he would talk about, you know, you would think like a play. I mean, I remember him saying this in part on CJ McCollum's podcast yeah. while he was discussing the confusion with his role that he also said something along the lines of, you would think that a player, like I'm the longest tenured pacer. You would think that that person would be getting, more field goal attempts, but that's just not the way that it's worked out. I'm like, yes, nobody's denying that he's had to make sacrifices. His touches were way down. They were as low as they were as a rookie. Like with the roster they had, he was not getting as many touches, but with the touches he did have, he can't really be pointing fingers when he's pointing out, he's passing out of shots that he gets. I mean, some of that was also telling in the heat series when I pointed out the stat about he had the lowest potential assist of anyone in the first round with the number of passes he made, which is telling because that means you're either a lot of times passing out of shots or your passes are leading to offensive resets. So I think that Nate Bjorkren putting him in better positions to get shots and they're running a uh, more offense with more weak side movement and he's more of a focus. I think that will open things up, but it shouldn't all, not all of this blame falls on Nate McMillan. Some of it falls on miles Turner because even if there was confusion in his role, like I, I still would love to be a fly on the wall in that conversation. Like did the Pacers literally tell him last spring in his exit interviews or whenever it was like, Hey, we just need you to work on post-ups. Like, was that literally the conversation? Because if it was, I just, I'm so confused by that. Like he needs to be able to attack a switch, but 
I mean, I've said it many times, but I didn't get why they were opening games in the bubble, running the sets, the flex sets, force a bonus to get a post up, but four miles Turner, like what are we doing there? But beyond that, like, I just, I just, and it's not me questioning what miles interpretation of whatever that conversation was, was like, if that's what it was, then okay. But like, you couldn't during that time, like you couldn't work on shooting a corner three. Like I just find it very odd that the very first day of training camp last year, there was images coming out from that where they were playing basically five out with angle pick and roll with Sabonis and miles was spaced to the corners. Like that was like brand new information. Like they knew that Sabonis was going to be a starter and neither miles nor Nate McMillan thought, Hey, miles is going to need to space the floor this year. Like I don't know. There's a lot of communication questions there, but yes, there's no way that Miles Turner is a bust. Like that's a ridiculous concept. Like he's on a reasonable contract. He does a lot of things well as a superb pick and roll defender, and he has potential to be a modern stretch big. I just don't think that he's fully realized that yet. And I have questions about his overall feel and whether he's ever going to be somebody that you could like pass the ball to and he's already going to know what play to make like I think by this time you would have seen a little bit more of that but I'm not going to discount what Nate Bjorkman might be able to do with him I I do question the overall ceiling of continuing to play two centers at this point and I do think that there's things that Gordon Hayward would do that would help the Pacers like I'm not gonna shy away from that I do but yeah, well, your follower count is dropping rapidly now. Um, <laughs> no, because I, I that was that's kind of where I was coming from as well. I think um, a Gordon Hayward is just a better player than Miles Turner right now. I don't I don't think that's unfair to say to either of them. You know, I think that's just true. Like Gordon Hayward is a borderline all star player, even even in a smaller role this year. Um, you know, I think I just look at it in terms of. Um, I used to be very much so on the, oh, well, it's all the environment on miles. And then I think as I got a lot closer with the game this year and trying to understand it, like, like you're mentioning, it's not fair to pile on so much on on Nate. Like I think of course, uh, could miles have benefited from a different offense for sure. Would miles benefit by actually getting to play center on offense for sure. But you like, like you're mentioning, I mean, he could have, he, so yeah, he took a career high in threes this year, but, that career high in threes could have been, you know, like maybe one or two more threes a game, even if he's not record scratching, if he's not passing up open opportunities, like he's mentioning that um, he doesn't have a lot of field goal attempts. And I think part of that is, you know, he doesn't, A, he doesn't really necessarily take field goal attempts upon himself. Um, and B, like, I, I don't want to call him a passive player, but I think he, he hasn't done a whole ton to warrant more field goal attempts necessarily. Like if you're not going to stretch the floor, then I, I don't know how you're going to take any more shots. Like, I think that's just like how, how we view him. Like, that's what he's good at. Like if he could actually, like if he willingly would stretch the floor, that's where his inherent value as an offensive player comes from. Like, yeah, I can post up and I think his post-ups got better this year. Um, but, and it's just weird too. Like, I think sometimes he's maybe a little bit underrated defensively. Cause I think he's, I mean, he was, finished third in defensive player of the year in 2019, which I think I almost always forget that it's crazy to think about. Cause that defense was so good. Um, but I don't know. I think, yeah, so much of it just comes down to his feel for the game. And of course, environment plays a part, but at, at some point too, it, it is miles and his confidence. Yeah. Cause I mean, and this is something that the Miami Heat are just really good about is sliding up and down the three-point line to get in the eye of the ball handler so that they can see you 
where you need to be to get those mm-hmm. spot up attempts. And Miles is more uh, kind of glues himself to one spot. Or if he doesn't glue himself to one spot, like an example, you know, Sabonis is in a post up against Milwaukee. Milwaukee sends two defenders to him. They don't run a split cut up above him. And then for some reason, like Miles starts inching off the three point line and comes to the, to the opposite or to the dunker spot while the post-up is occurring. Like if you stay out there at the three point line in the range of Sabonis to make a pass, then you're going to like that many defenders can't guard that many shooters. Like, first of all, if they're running the split cut, that would have helped to begin with, but Mm. the person's going to have to make a choice between guarding TJ Warren, if he's in the corner and, and miles Turner on the wing. So just stay where you are. Like it's, it's those types of things that are, are, can be frustrating with him at times, but, I mean, it's kind of interesting to look at the Boston perspective of it because a lot of the people in Boston don't seem to want to make that trade. Yeah. And I kind of understand why, because like right now the Celtics have, while they did not beat the Heat in the in the Eastern Conference Finals, like first of all, Gordon Hayward was not 100%. I remember the Boston Globe reported after that series that he was probably still two weeks out from being fully recovered from that severe grade three ankle sprain. Mm-hmm. But like you just have so much versatility with that many ball handlers at once. And, and are you losing a bit of what makes you special? And, and Miles isn't going to step right in for them into the Al Horford role. Like in the sense of, you know, I believe that Brad Stevens likes a stretch big and they probably like what I think Nate Bjorkman's going to do would probably get miles more shots, but again, it matters how much the defense cares about him taking those shots. Like he's going to have to hit them for the defense to stay closer to him. But beyond that, like he's not going to run DHOs like Al Horford did for Boston. Like that's not going to happen. So uh, it doesn't seem like they have a super positive take on the trade, the people that cover the Celtics. But um, yeah, I mean, I think if if he stays with the Pacers and and they move on, like it's going to have to be a two-way street. Like they definitely need to get him more actively involved, but he also, as you say, has to actively involve himself. And hopefully he's been just like shooting tons of threes during this downtime to try to get that percentage up. And beyond that is also working on like, if people do start closing out on him that he can put the ball on the floor. Cause like you even look back at that Celtics series from two seasons ago and the heat and the Celtics guarded him so differently because mm-hmm. when he was out there versus Boston, a lot of times they were pre-rotating to his popping spot. So there was just nothing he was going to do or they yeah. were switching it. And now this year he did get a little bit better at attacking some of those switches and just shooting over the top. He doesn't really have a counter move, but he was more active at, at at least like, Oh, I have a switch. I'm going to the block and I'm going to be confident making a quick move and hitting this turnaround jumper. But in that series, like he didn't have that. And then it's like, where do you go from here when they're standing at his, at his popping location and taking that pocket pass away. So um, it's a little, little by little development for him. And like I said, I had, referring to him as a bust is just as ludicrous in my opinion. Like, I don't yeah. know who said that, but that's completely untrue. Yeah. Pacers Twitter remains undefeated. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think, yeah, ultimately like the ideal role for him is like, if he could, I, I, I wish that it kind of worked like European soccer in the NBA and you could loan a player for like a certain amount of time and then they come back to you. And I wish that the Pacers could loan miles Turner to Dallas and Rick Carlisle could just give him the Chris Stapps Porzingis treatment and tell him that he's shooting eight threes a game, no matter what. And then he could come back and be perfect. But like, yeah, I, I think 
And, and then the question somewhat would be, is is Miles going to take threes from 30 feet like Kristaps Przingis? Because like that's another element of this. Like Part yeah. of the reason why Dallas can stretch the floor so well is because defenses are having to take an extra two steps to defend him. Like I, I looked at those numbers whenever we did our player review thing, and the difference in how many deep threes Kristaps took in comparison to Miles was a very large um, discrepancy. But, I mean, and like you said, if, if there's never been any clarity in what – I mean, and I, I, it's hard to know what those conversations were, but like, if you're going to be a stretch big, then you need to be able to be prepared to stretch the floor. Cause like we said, if you have, if you have TJ Warren at the four Gordon Hayward, you're obviously going to have other issues, but like those guys are going to attract more attention from the three point line than currently what miles is going to do as a four in this offense, but we shall see. Yeah, I think I think that there's there's ways there's sets that they can run that are going to be better than what they were running with Sabonis and Miles a year ago because so much of the time the last two years they didn't really run sets to involve both of them at the same time so it might look different in, in uh, practice than what it's looked the last couple of years but so my next question or I guess my last question is going to fold several things into one but. Uh, overall, since we have draft night coming up and you've done a lot of draft pods with a lot of people who are much smarter than I am, um, what would you consider for the Pacers to be a disappointing draft night? What would have to happen for you to be like, I'm disappointed with this outcome? Like it doesn't necessarily have to be a player. It could just be, you know, how they handle draft night or what goes down, or it could be a player. I don't know. I think, hmm. I think a disappointing outcome for me would be a selling the pick. Um, I think that would be kind of disappointing if they sold the pick, because I know that's something that's in play. Um, I think a second round pick right now is going to be worth like just about a million dollars. Tony was talking about that on locked on this morning. Um, And I know like, obviously just the way that the cap is and the way everything's shaking out, that's definitely something that front offices or more importantly, ownership will be looking at. Um, So that would be disappointing. So I think you, you always want to, like a confident front office is going to say, okay, we have a pick, we have a chance to do something here and develop a player that we're confident in. Um, so I, I mean, that would be positive in my mind to actually just take a pick and see what happens. Um, I think it would also be disappointing. And this is partially just me being a little bit biased and on where I'm at with the team. I think if the team doesn't make a move before free agency with the moratorium lifted now, um, I would personally be a little bit, not maybe disappointed is the wrong word. I know a lot of people really want to see the team run it back, but we've talked about this so much. Like I just, I just don't see a real reason to say, uh, you know, we should run this team back. Like I get, I, I get it. I get the injury issues. Um, I get that you, that these guys really haven't gotten to share the floor that much together, but it just with everything with Vic and everything that we've talked about with miles, like I think there's just enough there that to me, I'm like, well, why, it just seems a little bit counterintuitive to me to run it back. Like after, and this is partially me because I'm a all the way person. I never do anything like half-assed because it's just frustrating me. And it, I feel like I'm wasting my time. Like if you're going to go through all of this process of rebuilding the coaching staff, restructuring everything you're doing, I, I don't necessarily want to go back with the exact same roster that there was last year. Yeah. So I completely agree on, on the selling the pick thing because I actually looked up. I'm like, I don't want to repeat a 2014 
when I waited until like midnight to see who the Pacers picked <laughs> at 57th. And it was Louis. I'm hoping I pronounced this right. I did not take French. Um, Louis Labirier, I think. I don't even remember that name. Oh Louis Labirier, who then his rights were traded to the Knicks. They sold the pick to the Knicks. And then he just ended up being like a draft and stash guy, which yeah. I'm sure draft and stash is going to be a popular thing this year, especially because like we've said before, like, I don't know if there's going to be a G league season. There's not mm-hmm. going to be summer league. There's going to be probably a condensed schedule with very few practices. So I could see teams doing that because there's not going to be a lot of opportunity for those second round picks, but I'd rather see the Pacers use that pick. And I know like with Edmund Sumner, uh, they signed him to a two-way contract. Like, yeah. I don't, I mean, Bulbul also signed a two-way contract last year. Like there are time, there are examples where second round picks can be used in those flex positions. And I do think it's beneficial. I saw under the new CBA that two-way players, it's no longer going to be 45 days. It's going to be, I think 50 games. So if there's somebody that they like in that spot, they could still use that person in a two-way so that they wouldn't have to eat into as much of their shrinking cap space with the way the luxury tax worked out. Like I, mm. I think, I mean, I don't know. I didn't read the new 60 page memo, but um, they're obviously not going to have a lot of sp- spending power to fill out the rest of their roster. And I'm not a draft expert to know if there's somebody that could really help them in the second round or not. I do know that they liked uh, Yoli Childs out of BYU. I was told specifically that they uh, quote dig him. So Uh, But on the front with the trades, I think where I land on it is this, like you said, like I question the overall ceiling of what that they, what they have, especially because like last year they, they had a, obviously a good record. They finished in the top four, despite the fact that Victor missed as many games as he did and as many injuries as they had, but it it looks like Brooklyn and the Sixers are coming. Like they're going to be more competent this year unless like catastrophe strikes in some shape or form. So there's going to be more teams to be combating with. I have questions about how their roster stacks up against some of those matchups in a playoff situation. Like not just how many wins are they going to get in this condensed regular season when they're trying to learn a new system and, and adapting to a lot of different adjustments and adjustments that might be somewhat uh, shaky with two bigs on the floor, but Obviously, I don't know what the what the trade packages are out there are. Like, you're not just going to give Miles Turner away for for cents on the dollar. Like, I think he's a good player. So yeah. if, if it isn't a deal that they like, I don't think that there's like this is a must trade situation. And Victor is a is a bit of a different scenario because of everything that's going on there. But I think where my disappointment would lie is if Drew Holiday and Gordon Hayward both get moved, and the Pacers and- aren't involved. And the Pacers are involved in some way, shape, or form. Or if they get moved to teams and, and you see the offer and you're like, hmm, we could have the done Pacers better. probably could have beat that. Yeah. Like if they get moved to a different team and you feel like the Pacers probably could have beat that. And you know, it has to be within reason. I don't know that like in Drew Holiday's case, like I, I think he fits the Pacers. It isn't even just about like the coolness of having three brothers on the same team and three players that I enjoy watching. I think that he fits what they need to do, especially yeah. if it's going to be uh, Sabonis at solo five. I think defensively that makes a lot of sense because Drew isn't, I mean, he's a solid defender, not in the way that, that like in comparison to Marcus smart, like Marcus smart is much more of a risk taker on defense. Whereas Drew holiday is just pretty much solid. Like, so I, I think, I think he could adapt to all these different defenses that they want to play as well. But 
Like, I don't know that I would want to sacrifice a bunch of draft capital for that, but it depends what the Pelicans value. Um, I think Miles Turner makes sense for the Pelicans, but David Griffin may not agree. Like, you know, you don't know what the Boston Celtics value. I saw a rumor the other day that they're not really hot on the pursuit of upgrading their center position and are more concerned with other holes. So you never know, but uh, those are the two main people that if they got moved, I would, I would think, you know, kind of what are we doing here a little bit? Cause at some point you have to be willing to move in your chips and, and say like, Hey, we're going to take a little bit of a risk here for the higher potential ceiling that we might have with either one of those two guys than what we have right now. But um, I thought it was interesting. Did you listen to the podcast? This kind of plays into this. Did you listen to the podcast that the sideline guys did with Ryan Carr? I did not. Okay. So this was, this was, there was a lot of good nuggets in there, but um, they talked, he talked about that, like on the prospect, I mentioned this a couple pods ago, like would the Pacers be able to get in? Like if there was a chance that they could trade up as part of one of these trades, like let's say, you know, Dallas wants to get involved with Oladipo and they're like, Hey, we're going to give you number 18 that Ryan mentioned that it's easier that like the challenges of this particular draft is that like, because the Pacers are picking in the late fifties, like they are that, if you had like, let's say they had a first round pick in the twenties, it would be easier to tell agents like, Hey, give us info because we have a chance at moving up than it would be to sell agents on that concept. When you're in the fifties to actually get meetings with some of these guys who might go in the first round or be able to have, you know, the zoom interviews or access to the workouts or whatever, that there's mm-hmm. hurdles in terms of getting info from agents where a lot of this draft might turn into like there's a lot of educated guesses that they might have to turn into facts and that type of a scenario. And a lot of it's just going to be more based on film study, which, you know, isn't a terrible thing, but he just talked about those challenges. And then they, he also got asked if like having a new coach would reshuffle their board, which I didn't really think about like finding guys, finding guys that might fit the, this type of style that Nate Bjorken wants to play versus who, might have fit better within McMillan's coaching philosophy. And he said that they wouldn't reshuffle their board at all because they look more at like, who do we think is going to have the best overall career, but that it might change their recommendations out of what their board is that they make that like his team would make to Kevin Pritchard and Nate Bjorkren. So those were just a couple of tidbits that I thought were interesting in this overall like trade conversation. But um, there was another one. That kind of parlayed. I know I'm already past my question limit, but no, I don't care. We can always keep talking. I'm trying I... to think who asked it. Oh, Thomas Sincara. I liked this one. If this era of Pacers basketball never makes it past the first round of the play playoffs, will you look back on it with fondness? Ooh. First of all, I know Thomas. So Thomas, thank you for sending that in. Um, will I look back on it with fondness? Um, I think, ooh, this is, I mean, it's, that's a, it's a, it's a rough question. It's not as bad as 13, 14. Um, it's definitely not as bad as 04, 05. Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, 17, 18 was one of my favorite years of basketball to ever watch. I think that team was just a joy to watch. Um, I think we kind of get a little bit carried away in, talking about 
the officiating in in the first round series. I think that team did have a chance to beat the Cavs, but at the end of the day, um, the Cavs had three of the four best players on 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 the on the court for seven games. Um, I mean, if it ends the way that it potentially could, then I I don't know if I would look back on it with fondness. Just the way that everything's kind of gone down with Vic. Um, it, it had a really bright start. Um, and obviously injuries played a major factor in if it does end up with just a bunch of first round outs. Um, but I'm hopeful that it doesn't end that way. I mean, I think ultimately you do have to look at it as, as a positive because like, like I mentioned with 0405, like, um, those are some of the darkest years for the Pacers after then, you know, after, uh, Ron gets traded after Jermaine gets traded in, in 2007, Obviously, I mean, that brings back some great pieces like Roy Hibbert comes in and, and he starts to develop. Danny Granger takes steps. But then, I mean, Danny Granger, Troy Murphy, Mike Dunleavy, like those teams weren't good. They weren't really fun to watch. Um, and luckily that that came into a new era of basketball. The team only missed the playoffs once uh, in that transition stage. You know, the one year Paul's injured is the year that they missed the playoffs. Uh, I think – you look at what Paul was to the franchise, arguably the best player who's played in Indiana since Reggie. Um, and I, I mean, you could obviously make the case for Jermaine too, but like uh, the fact that he left the way that he did and Vic and Domas were able to come back and develop into the players that they've become. I think this era should be looked at as something that is positive, but that's just my ultimate look on it. Yeah, I, I side on with you that I think 17-18 was one of the most fun seasons that I can remember of the Pacers just because of the, you know, the juxtaposition of of how things had ended with Paul George and then just to have Victor explode as early as he did mm-hmm. and the way that he did and, you know, pretty in quick order in that Spurs game hitting a clutch shot and like that everything about that. It was just like a breath of fresh air type of season. And I definitely think, as you said, that context matters. I mean, there was reasons why they got knocked out in the first round these last several years, but at the same time, like if this ends up being the end of the road, like if, if this is the last season of this particular era, I think one thing that I will take with me is that maybe in, in in some instances they waited a little too long to do things that, that needed to happen. Like, obviously like, I mean, we can go back and forth on the Nate McMillan thing, but like, uh, like they, they knew what type of a team Nate McMillan ran before that came to this season. And I think that a lot of the reason that obviously that they let go of him was in part because of some of this locker room stuff that was going on and that maybe he wasn't completely mitigating it. But, um, I do think that that type of system limited what that they could be in the playoffs. And then also like, just, I'm going to look back and have questions about a lot of things from that 18, 19 season mm-hmm. with Victor in between from the time when he was out for 11 games to when he injured himself, that was a really weird time period. His comments in the aftermath of that injury still stick out to me where he basically says in his Instagram post after, I don't know if it was after he had surgery or what, but the very first few words are like, uh, these last few months have been really hard for me and my family, or I'm not going to lie. These last few months have been really hard for me and my family. And all this time, I've always wondered like what part was hard, like 
and I'm not judging him at all that that's the way that he felt, but like, did he feel like, was he managing a lot of pain before that injury occurred? Like, did he question if he should be playing during that range of time? Like nobody ever really asked him, like, what did you mean with that opening sentence? Like, cause I mean, let's face it. There's been a lot of weirdness around him before this bubble stuff happened. Yeah. Like even post injury, there was weirdness. I mean, he did not return and come back he stayed in Miami that entire time, even when the Pacers were in the playoffs, like he didn't come back to watch the team play in those games. So I'll look back and wonder about that, but even like post injury, like why some of the decisions were made to like, and I know that they want to project as having this winning culture and that if players come here, they're going to do what it takes to win. But like adding Wesley Matthews when they could have been getting development for Aaron or Edmund Sumner or, you know, why they didn't tell Thad at that juncture, like, hey, we need to see what DeBontis Sabonis and Miles Turner can do as a pairing. And this presents us with this opportunity to do so. Because if you really believe in what they can be, why not get a jump start on it and start doing it? And that doesn't mean to completely bench Thad and not get him minutes. It just means like, hey, you're going to come off the bench because this presents us with an opportunity to gauge what they are. And just, just the waiting there and like, yeah. you know, the prior season being like Nate saying like, well, they're both fives. Like that's not a good lineup for us. Like if that's what you believe, then let's just move on from it. Or if, if eventually we're going to head into this crash course where they need to play together, then let's get on with it. Like, it just felt like in some cases that they just delayed what the inevitable was going to be. And I think that I'll, I'll think back to that, even though overall they've made, smart moves. And it kind of seems like the Pacers kind of let things fester and Mm -hmm. get to a fever pitch before they always act. And I think this has kind of punctuated that a little bit, but who knows, maybe, maybe all of it will work out in the end. Maybe Nate Bjorkren will deserve like coach of the year honors for his ability to get all these people back in the same kumbaya circle and, and on the same page, but yeah, I'm hopeful. And that's just to add one little last thing. I mean, that's really interesting what you bring up with Thad because I don't know if you you listened to this, but on on setting the pace, Alex Golden's podcast, he had that on. Um, I think earlier in the year, it was during, during it was before the hiatus, um, I believe. And he asked that, you know, like, would you have been willing to come off the bench um, if you sign resign with the Pacers in the offseason? I know obviously money and stuff like that comes up too, but that's like, I'm I'm coming off the bench in, in Chicago, aren't I? And like, I mean, just knowing the kind of person that is, like he's not going on an interview to bullshit somebody. So I think that's, that, that just adds a whole other wrinkle to looking at how, uh, how, how that, that 18, 19 season played out. But yeah. Did yeah. you have any last questions to squeeze in? I, uh, some of these, everyone who did ask me questions, asked really good ones, but some of them we touched on, but I might save them to the field house guys who asked me to rank Pacers in terms of trade values. That's a good question, but that developed and is going to take way more brain power than what I had time to prepare <laughs> put on here to, to, uh, to hop on. But did you have any last yeah, thoughts? Um, I think the last thing I would say, uh, just looking at, obviously, you know, Tony brought up this point to me yesterday as well, that I thought was interesting looking at the Dennis Schroeder trade that just happened. Um, obviously it's not like completely congruent, but considering what OKC just got in return for Dennis Schroeder, who had in a definitely better season than Victor Oladipo, like that doesn't exactly speak well to what his trade value might be right now. And so I guess that's not really a question, but that's more like, do you think that that, that is, is like telling because- a little bit? 
because you think that the return was low or you think the return uh, it was felt high? like the well the the return was I, I don't I don't I didn't think it was high I thought I felt the return was almost low um I mean the 20 I don't know though and, or I, I don't know maybe not low because I mean he was six man um but he had a really really good season but I think my point is just like he had a better season than Vic and he I don't know if I could say he necessarily offers more than Vic and you could be like okay well Vic was an all-star so there's that and well he returned to form from injury but like I don't know. It's an interesting kind of conundrum. I guess, yeah, somebody actually did ask me that question in the comments, so we might as well uh, hop onto it. But I think my thought with that is, like, but Dennis Schroeder was an expiring contract. Like, yes, he was in the six-man conversation, but, like, they got back an expiring contract and a first-round pick for an expiring contract. And I think that Danny Green showed some age more than what some other people seem to think. Like, defensively, I didn't – I positioning wise he was upright a lot last year in the playoffs like he didn't seem like he was quite at his same level like disregarding you know the missed shot and the shooting like just defensively I thought he'd take a step back but I think theoretically OKC is probably thinking that they're going to flip him for additional yeah definitely draft capital at some point like he doesn't really make sense to stay there if they're going through a rebuilding situation so I didn't think the return was really I mean I didn't really think it was that low but uh Oladipo is just such a unique situation. Like I think what would be more harmful to Vic's trade value is if this Brooklyn package goes through because people, people are never going to fully get what they think a, a star should get in return. But like if, if the nets are able to get James Harden and like, obviously this is still theoretical, but if they're able to trade Lavert and Dinwiddie and Allen and whatever picks to, to pry away James Harden, to me that depresses drew holidays value with the Pelicans and it further depresses yeah. Victor's value. Like that's the one that I would watch a little bit more than what even happened with Schroeder. But I mean, in either instance, like Victor's an expiring and Victor has a lot to prove to get back. And there's also like other teams have to be looking at this. I'm wondering from the outside, like what's that guy going to be like on our team? Like if he was telling other players last year, like, Hey, can I come play with y'all? Like, I don't think that helped his trade value. I don't, I mean, it, like, look at it this way. Like, let's pretend that Drew Holiday gets traded to, you know, I'm just pulling something out of the air. Let's say that Atlanta trades for him or Golden State does, and then you're Denver and you're thinking, hey, we might want to upgrade our roster. I don't think a team with as strong of chemistry as the Nuggets have are going to be like, hmm, let's sign up for whatever Victor's been doing the last year. Yeah. Like, you know, that just doesn't make sense for them. But I would look at, like I said, I think that the James Harden one might be actually a little bit more. If that like trade if goes through for James depressed. Harden, I'll lose my mind. There's that. That's just, oh, wow. I can't even imagine that. Two total just steal trades for James Harden in his lifetime. Um, that is definitely not James Harden's value. So that would be, uh, that would be kind of mind blowing to me. Yeah, so I think that I think we about covered everything. Like, hopefully, oh, yeah. we haven't missed a bunch of woes bombs while we've been on here with me. I know I've been checking my phone to make hour. sure I don't. I don't think we missed anything. Uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope's de- declining his player option, but that's really that's really it. Um, but yeah, Caitlin, this is fun. <laughs> we are about to have a week. I uh, I'm anticipating it right now. I'm. Uh, oh, I didn't even mention. Did you Did you notice the one little? <laughs> trade scuttle but no i mean it doesn't necessarily mean that there is or isn't a trade but did you see that miles turner reposted that hype video that was made for him for the upcoming season and the thumbnail was him the thumbnail was him dunking on gordon hayward 
He, <laughs> I did not see that. that yeah, and he fantastic. reposted it with that thumbnail. That's awesome. Wow. I did not know about that. I, I knew he reposted. Oh. I didn't see the thumbnail, but that is that's honestly fantastic. So much Pacer stuff swirling around. Oh, I man. I Love know. this team. Love this team. Pacers PR has been working a lot. I'm sure they've week. had a very entertaining last five or six days. And it's going to be even more entertaining this week. Well, um, Caitlin, what are you, uh, what are you working on or idly waiting for? While we, uh, while we kind of get through what's about to be the longest week and a half of the year. Yeah. So yeah, definitely just responding to whatever does or does not happen. And then if it turns out that the Pacers, as they said, at the introductory presser, when they asked coaches about the current roster, if the current roster's back, then I might delve in a little bit more into some of the sets that I think are cool that they could run with Miles mm-hmm. and Sabonis if they're both back and might dig into that once the roster is fully fleshed out with whoever they're filling in. Um, I know you have a free agency pod plans later this week, so that's something to look forward to. Yes, I'm definitely looking forward to that. I that feels like a month away. It's going to feel like a month away as we grind through the days. But yeah, we have a, oh man, we have a lot to look forward to. Well, um, this was fun. Thanks again for coming on. I always love getting to talk. Um, and to everyone listening, of course, follow Caitlin, follow her work. Um, she just put out a great piece on Caliber Cheney signing, signing, uh, becoming an assistant coach with the Pacers. Well, I guess it's signing. He signed a deal. Um, so obviously go read that. Um, of course, listen to all of our back catalog of pods. We had a lot of really great draft coverage come out from some of the very best draft analysts out there. Um, so I would definitely appreciate if you go listen, check those out. I have some dr- more, a little bit more draft stuff coming out, um, starting to focus in on free agency. And I will, of course, be covering stuff. We're probably going to have a couple of multi-pod days just because of the sheer volume of information that will be coming out. So stay tuned for that. Just have a good rest of your day.